to the Run, Eat, Repeat podcast. If you love running or eating, you'll love this show. Now, here's your host, Monica Olivas. Hello and welcome to the Run, Eat, Repeat podcast. This is Monica, and I'm here to answer all of your running, eating, and redheaded Mexican questions of the day. And I actually have three super awesome questions to address today. First, how do you lose weight when you have thyroid issues? Hello, isn't it already hard to lose weight? Does your body really need to make it harder? Second, should you do a shakeout run before a race? And I guess more than should you, because different people do different things, but specifically, do I do them or do I think that this is an important thing to do? And finally, is organic food better for you? Or is it just more expensive and sometimes fancy people want to pay more for things? Anyways, let's get to it. These are super awesome questions and I actually missed two of them recently in my email. So if you are in need of me answering one of your questions, you can email runnyrepeat at gmail.com. Just make sure that you put podcast question in the subject line because I'm putting a filter on to make sure that those get to the top of my inbox and I can answer them a little bit quicker. Let's go. First question is from Karen and she says, I've been following your blog for a long time and remember you mentioning thyroid issues. I was wondering if anything changed with your thyroid management that contributed to your weight loss that wasn't mentioned in your videos. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroidosis and I'm so curious about hormones, anti-inflammatory diet, et cetera, to aid in my treatment aside from my thyroid meds. Thanks, Karen. This is a really great question and something that I get a lot because having thyroid issues doesn't just hurt weight loss. It also can hurt energy levels. So it makes it very challenging if you are trying to train for a distance race to have the energy to do so. So I will put links in the show notes at runitrepeat.com to the weight loss videos that she mentions. I did a series of videos recently on how I lost weight and I actually don't really talk about thyroid stuff. So this is the perfect opportunity to do so. And I have talked about being diagnosed with hypothyroidism since I was first diagnosed because I think it was probably about five years ago, maybe four or five years ago that I was diagnosed and I already had the blog. And it seems very relevant because having hypothyroidism makes it harder often to lose weight. And also it can affect your energy levels and your mood. Sometimes it can make you depressed even. And so I talked about it originally when I was first diagnosed, and then I started doing research. And it was actually very interesting to me that I had kind of been doing things wildly wrong with my diet and how they affected this issue in my body. So first, regarding diet changes, I didn't specifically look into an anti-inflammatory diet, but... I have researched and experimented with food and supplements a lot since being diagnosed. And to be completely honest, this is a huge part of the reason why I ended up becoming a health coach is because I realized that I needed to be an expert in this because no one else would be able to tell me exactly what to do and how I felt and how that affected me. And it was just like, 
I believe that you can do a lot for yourself in terms of natural methods of self-care. And that involves like diet and exercise and stress management. And I was doing research. And the fact that I realized that the foods that I was eating were healthy, but they were the exact wrong foods for someone with a low thyroid. And so that was one of the first changes that I made was doing research into foods that someone with hypothyroidism should avoid. And I should also really make a huge, huge disclaimer here. First of all, I'm not a doctor or any sort of expert on anything outside of, like I always say, being a redheaded Mexican. And you know what? My redheaded brother might disagree and say he is really an expert in that, but I'm going to own it. Hypothyroidism is different from Hashimoto's. They are two different things. So this might not apply to you specifically, and you always have to be your own advocate, use common sense, and and do what's best for you. But I'm going to share what I've done, and hopefully you can take from it what is helpful and leave behind what is not helpful. Regarding diet, there are a list of foods, like I said, that you should avoid if you have hypothyroid issues. And One of them is vegetables in the cabbage family, which is shocking because I love cabbage, like cabbage slaw and any any type of salad that's like a slaw Asian kind of like made with cabbage and has like nuts in it and like a peanut dressing. I ate that every single day practically for lunch, coleslaw with like an Asian dressing and a veggie burger on top. And you know what's another food on the list of foods to avoid? Soy. And I was basically just flooding my body with two foods on the, hey, you should avoid these foods list. And I don't want to say do not eat list because I don't think that they are poisonous. I don't see them as me having a peanut allergy and this being peanuts. No. But you know what? You kind of want to help your body as much as possible in natural ways. And me eating those foods isn't really doing it any favors. So I cut back on that. There's also some, it's it's really hard to find very, very like specific scientific research that applies to my specific issues. But There are a lot of websites that say, and this was also, I'm like so hesitant to say this because it was also at the time when like everyone stopped eating gluten, that gluten can be bad for you. I mean, they apply that to everything, right? It's like anything from thyroid issues to acne to ADD. And I'm not saying any of that is untrue. I am saying you need to be your own doctor, researcher, scientist, and Assess if something makes sense and if it applies to you and then test it and see if it is consistent with people's theories of what they're saying, especially when it comes to complete strangers on the internet who make random podcasts and talk to their cat and fall three times a year. I'm talking about me. So I tweaked my diet. I cut way back on anything like cabbage-wise, Brussels sprouts, uh, soy products. And I also cut out gluten for a huge amount of time, probably about a year. 
And I didn't talk about it a lot on the blog at the time. I don't think I really talked about it at all specifically because I was still eating a lot of other carbs or bread or tortillas that were gluten-free, you know, made from rice or potato or whatever. And I was on a fact-finding mission. This wasn't like a diet or a detox or anything. I was trying to figure out like, hey, is this going to help me or not? Do I feel better? Is it changing my blood work? I was just trying to research and assess what made sense for me and do the best thing for me. And that is a huge part of the reason why I ended up becoming a health coach because I wanted to figure this out for myself. And I knew that I needed more education on all of these things. And so along the way, I have figured out that cutting out gluten for an extended amount of time, it's not like I did it because I know that for people that have celiac or other issues with gluten or you know, like a wheat allergy, it can stay in your body a really long time. I gave it enough time to GTFO and there was no change in my blood work specifically. So gluten is back. I'm back, B. But I, in general, still try to avoid any of the foods that are considered, I think it's goitrogens is how you say it. I will put a link in the show notes to a couple of posts that I have done on this where I talk about the diet changes that I've made and just originally getting diagnosed with it. And I am on medication for it that I take like a a prescription daily. So that's a whole other thing. And that's something obviously that we all need to do individually with our doctor, but I take supplements as well. And I do feel like they make a difference. There are times when I will take them. I mean, for a huge, huge amount of time, I was taking it super, super consistently. I'll put a link in the show notes. For the most part, I take a thyroid supplement. I have also switched it up and taken adrenal fatigue supplements that I've noticed have similar ingredients, but are not exactly the same. And I think those also make me feel similar in terms of I don't feel anything super lacking. There have been times when I have not went to go get more. And you can get these at a health food store. You can order them on Amazon. And I've noticed that if I stop taking it for a significant amount of time, I do notice a difference probably in my energy level. And not specifically, like it's not, you're not gaining weight because you're more hungry, but I think you're just in general, I don't know. I would like to think that it it slows my metabolism because then that gives me a reason to be like, this is what it is. The last 10 pounds aren't going anywhere. And I'm self-accepting. I have a medical condition. I have a glandular problem. But yes, I take supplements as well. So I have switched up my diet in general just to avoid the, the foods that are like the do not eat these foods. And I take a thyroid supplement regularly. And like I said, I've switched it up with an adrenal fatigue supplement as well. What I'm looking for more than anything in these things are um, ashwagandha and L-tyrosine are the two ingredients that I look for in the thyroid supplement. I don't take specifically um, iodine separately either. I just take a thyroid supplement to hopefully hit all the bases. And I take that most days. I don't know. There have been times. I'm actually really bad about it right now, but I have them. 
I just have been bad in general about taking my vitamins because I've been taking just a lot of vitamin C because man, the flu and the cold this year are just terrifying me. So I've just been ODing on that stuff. But yeah, I hope that is helpful. Um, Let me know if you have any other questions. Like I said, I have written a couple of posts on this in the past, but since I don't have Hashimoto's, I don't think I can speak to it as much as I would like to. I don't think I can do it justice. And I know that this sucks and it's super frustrating. So that's just my kind of 10 cents. But if you have any follow-up questions, Karen, feel free to reach out. And like I said, the weight loss videos and the previous posts, I will link to all of that in the show notes. And really, I don't think it was any one thing. I don't think it was specifically the diet changes or the supplements or the medication. I think it was all of it working together, which is kind of frustrating because you still have to be a work in progress. But at the same time, it's liberating because you have a lot of control over it too, right? So I think it was everything kind of working together. Like I said, and and you mentioned too, you're on thyroid meds and it's like, what else in addition to that can I do? And I think it is general self-care, like making sure you are eating healthy, avoiding any food that doesn't make you feel good or is potentially hurting you more than making you happy, getting enough rest, looking into supplements and um, yeah, trying to do all of those things. So I hope that's helpful. Now, next question. How do you feel about shakeout runs? If you run before a race, half and full marathon, how far do you typically run? Any advice on this would be helpful. Thank you, Lulu. Okay. How do I feel about shakeout runs? I feel like I appreciate the theory behind a shakeout run. It's important to avoid injury, obviously, and to bring your A game if you are running a race with a goal in mind, for sure. I don't do shakeout runs. What I do instead is usually end up getting lost on the way to the race or not being able to find parking or just being late in general because of the kind of person I am, and then running to the start line. (laughs) Okay, this is that's actually kind of happened. One time, I don't think it was last year, I think it was the year before, SR and I were the two last people to start the Phoenix Marathon. So that's kind of actually happened. But really, I don't do shakeout runs before a race because I've never shown up at the start line of a half marathon or a full marathon thinking I am in it to win it. And I think I would do a shakeout run if I thought I needed to be warm and loose to make the first mile, mile or two fast. And if you are cold and tight and not ready to go full speed, you could potentially get hurt, right? So this is part of the reason why it would be important to do a shakeout run. If you are going for a PR, if you expect to go really fast and you are tight, you know, you had a long car ride or there's just something like you're not injured because you wouldn't run a race like that, right? Wink. But you know, like there's just something tight or your body is telling you, you need to do a shakeout run, warm up, stretch out, definitely do it for sure. I think 
it's probably a good idea to keep in mind the number one rule of race day for something like this. And the number one rule of race day is never do anything new. You never do anything new on race day. And this can apply to that, right? Because if you are used to warming up and either doing some sort of shakeout run and then stretching or a series of drills before a long run or any speed work, you're doing that in training. Yeah, you should probably do that on race day. If you're not doing that in training, you never do a shakeout run. You don't warm up before you run. You just go for it and see what happens. You probably don't need to. And that's me talking to me. I don't want ever anyone to get injured. So I think you have to listen to your body. I don't do a shakeout run, but I do just kind of stretch or move around anything that I feel is tight. And it's nothing amazing because oftentimes it's just like in the corral before the race starts. So you don't have a ton of room, but I am kind of squatting down to stretch out my calves and my ankles. That's something that I've mentioned, I think, in Instagram stories in the past. Like I I do that in the morning when I'm on the phone. I like get into a very low squat and I feel like it stretches my calves really well and my feet and ankles. Um, So I'll do that a little bit before a race, but I don't specifically do a shakeout run to address your real, like specifically to address your question. However, I think if it's something that is something you're already doing, keep doing it for sure. And if there's any special circumstances, like I said, if you feel like you're super tight or you're coming back from maybe not an injury, but some sort of soreness that you feel like it would help, do it. You do you, boo. Lulu. Thanks for the question. Okay. Next question. Question number three. I'm honestly curious if eating organic really makes a difference as far as nutritional value goes. I've never been a big organic person because it costs so much more, and I always figured an apple is an apple whether it's organic or not. Is there really more nutritional value in organic food? Thanks, Jenny. And this is Jenny from Running on Life, who I see on Instagram a lot. I love this question because it's probably one of the most common questions I get from people who find out I'm a health coach or just into healthy eating and want to know, is organic food healthier? do I really have to buy organic because it's twice as expensive? And I think it's a lot more complicated than that because it's more than just does something have better nutritional value if we're thinking about health overall big picture. So specifically an organic strawberry versus a conventional strawberry, their nutrition value might be the same. If you were to make a nutrition label, right? And put the stats side by side, they might have the same amount of calories and fiber and vitamins, but the conventional strawberry might be contaminated with pesticides, which is definitely not better for your health. That said, it depends on what food it is. So there are a list, and you've probably heard this, the dirty dozen, there, I don't even know. It's probably been around for such a long time because originally it was the Dirty Dozen, this list of 12 foods that you should buy organic because they're the most likely to be contaminated with pesticides. So 
That list has expanded a little bit, and I will put a link to this, or I'll put the list of foods in the show notes, but I'm going to tell them to you real fast because I find all of this stuff very interesting. The foods that you should buy organic are strawberries, spinach, nectarines, apples, peaches, pears, cherries, celery, grapes, busted, Monaco Olivas, little pause right there for the grapes, tomatoes, sweet bell peppers, cherry tomatoes, potatoes, cucumbers, and lettuce. And this list is from Dr. Andrew Wheel's website that they have added on to. So there's a couple more than a dozen, but these are most likely to be contaminated with pesticides. And the thing is that these pesticides are, you know, meant to help these foods not get, you know, inundated with bugs potentially and grow. And cumulatively, we are consuming these pesticides little by little, tiny, tiny, tiny bits at a time over the course of our lives, right? So I think that that's part of the reason why you would want to have organic in these foods is that these are, you know, like you saying in apples and apple, right? Apples are one of the ones on the list. And so if you're just buying conventional, then you are potentially exposing yourself to pesticides or other contaminants, whatever it may be, a lot over the course of your life, depending on how many apples you eat. At the same time, in happier news, there are also a list of foods that you don't necessarily have to buy organic. They are called the Clean 15, because we have to make fun little names for this. The thing is that they should really make some fun sort of rhyme for the actual foods on the list because as much as I'm into this and I know that some of my favorite foods, like which list they're on, I don't have this whole thing memorized. So we need to come up with some sort of little song, ABC song. Can someone get on that, please? But let me tell you the foods that you don't necessarily have to buy organic. They are sweet corn, avocados, pineapple, cabbage, onions, sweet peas, papayas. Do you guys like papayas? Like that's, I don't know. I just don't get it. Anyways, asparagus, mangoes, eggplant, honeydew melon, kiwi, cantaloupe, cauliflower, and grapefruit. So those ones are less likely to have more pesticides on them. And like I said, I will put a link to both of these in the show notes. But to get back to your question, specifically, I guess the short answer could be, you know, they it might not make a huge difference nutritional value as far as calories, vitamins, all of those just specific numbers would be, but health-wise and nutrition does play a huge factor in that, you don't want to be consuming anything that could be considered a pesticide, right? And especially because we don't know how much we are consuming and Let's be honest here. This is me addressing myself because I have said repeatedly, I am trying to publicly pressure myself all the time on Instagram and Instagram stories to stop eating dirty grapes on the way home from the store. They are filthy. Not just that, but I'm not buying organic ones. So you can definitely help make a conventional food healthier by washing it or peeling it and 
potentially any service area that could be exposed to something, taking that off. And I don't know how that applies. And I would have to do more research into this on things that are what they're pulling in right from the root. So I don't know how through and through each piece of a fruit or a vegetable, a a pesticide could get into, but washing them does help a lot and, or, you know, peeling them or doing something could help. Uh, if you cannot afford organic, there are other options, or you can go towards the list of foods that you don't necessarily have to buy organic. So there are some workarounds. I don't think it's fair at all. I don't want to think that someone that doesn't have the money to buy organic is forced to be exposed to pesticides and or isn't able to buy healthy food. This makes me very upset. Like this is a whole other thing about low income people not having access and and living in food deserts. Like this is a whole other thing. But I think then what we can do is choose the foods on the Clean 15 and or make sure that if you are buying conventional foods that might be exposed to pesticides, that you are just treating them by cleaning them or doing something to see what you can take away in terms of the potential risk for pesticides. So I hope that was helpful. I love this stuff. I'm so excited. I wish we could talk about this in person on a run. If you guys were running, I hope it was a super awesome one. If you have a question for me, email me at runningrepeat at gmail.com with podcast question in the subject line, or you can call the Runny Repeat voicemail. I will put the number in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great run. Thank you for listening to the Run, Eat, Repeat podcast. For more information, check out runeatrepeat.com.